This is our second to last section in Galatians. So we only have one more teaching from Galatians. Uh, so we are rounding, rounding third. Is that, we're, we're approaching the home plate, whatever the correct baseball metaphor is there. Um, and as we near the end, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Galatians is getting a lot more practical. Uh, really since chapter 5, verse 13, things have been taking a practical turn. Um, and the whole book has been incredibly valuable. I hope you feel that way. I, I certainly do, because there are few things more important than us as a community of Jesus followers fighting tooth and nail week in and week out to understand the gospel, what it is, what it isn't, uh, and what it means for us. But if you're like me, last week's text and sermon was just this great breath of fresh air uh, as, as we started to move into what the gospel um, actually looks like in real life. Um, and Josh walked us through the, the two realities, the two possibilities that the Christian can find him or herself living into. One is gratifying the desires of the flesh, and the other is walking in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. And now, in this section, Paul is about to take the exact same ideas just one step further. We've got a chapter break in our Bibles, uh, but that chapter break's not original to Paul's writing. He's just continuing this idea, and he's actually going to make it even more practical by telling us, amidst all the walking with this and keeping in step with that and gratifying the this, he's going to tell us what it ought to actually look like to live this out, to work that out in the local church context. So he's going to tell us, in part, what we actually do as a local church family, as spiritual brothers and sisters to one another here in Portland, what we do to live out our gospel freedom faithfully. So should we jump in? Let's jump in. Let's just read the, this, the section here, verses 1 through 10, chapter 6. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I'm going to be making the case for this over and over during the course of the sermon. But when we take this whole section of Galatians together, starting back in chapter 5, verse 13, it becomes clear that Paul is arguing something actually a little surprising. Paul is arguing that the local church the local assembly of believers committed to one another in a particular time and in a particular place as they follow Jesus together. This is the primary context and means by which we learn to walk by the Spirit of God. 
And though that may not sound like too controversial of a thing to say uh, in a church, it's, it's actually an idea that's becoming increasingly out of step with sort of the modern Western culture, even modern Western Christianity in some ways. Uh, in his excellent book called Jesus Outside the Lines, Scott Sauls, who's a, a Presbyterian minister in uh, Nashville, he tells this story. I'll just quote it. He says, Recently, a man asked me if I thought it was important for Christians to be part of a local church. As the pastor of a local church, I found this question refreshingly honest. Before I responded, I asked the man to give me some context for his question. He said that he had not been part of a local church or attended a worship service for quite some time. He'd become quite satisfied with the church alternative that he'd created for himself. Rather than wasting his time with what he called institutionalized religion, he'd crafted a Christian experience that was custom-made specifically for him. He listened only to the music that he liked. He downloaded sermons from the internet by his favorite preachers. He read Christian books that interested him, and he was part of an informal community of like-minded believers. They were not part of a local church, but got together twice per month to talk about spiritual things. He listed several reasons why he preferred this alternative way of doing church. He had his Sundays completely free. He never had to sit through boring services, and his charitable giving went only to causes that he personally believed in. And best of all, he didn't have to deal with bothersome people, unwanted conversations, or church drama. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Now listen, I don't, I don't obviously know the man that Scott Sauls is talking about, but I know that he represents a growing groups of folks in the West uh, who are dissatisfied with their own local churches to such a degree that they've given up altogether on the idea of church, and they view it as either hopelessly institutional or as even detrimental to their uh, fellowship and intimacy with Jesus. And because we don't know this guy's particular story, we're left to fill in all kinds of blanks around what got him to this point. It's possible. Uh, I mean, we have to just acknowledge the reality is that sometimes churches, to the absolute grief of God, sometimes they do really harm people. They really, they really can. Spiritual abuse and, and other kinds of abuse do happen. Jesus does get represent, misrepresented, and sincere community does fail to materialize at churches. This is all very real, and it very well might be part of this guy's story. We don't know, but we'll acknowledge it. But setting all these what-ifs aside, set them, set them to the side for a second, do you see what he did? He has created an utterly frictionless church experience for himself. Frictionless. One in which he never has to be challenged by views he doesn't already hold. One in which he, he never has to have his blind spots pointed out. One in which he, he, he never has to set aside his stylistic preferences for those around him. One where he's, he never has to be held accountable for his sins against God and against others. One where he never has to be pushed to meet the emotional, financial, or spiritual needs of those around him. That's just the negative side. On the positive side, he never gets to experience the great joy of being a part of the messy glory of the biblical local church made up of all kinds of people loving and challenging and annoying and serving and hurting and forgiving and growing together as witnesses to the watching world that Jesus is real 
that he saves people from their sins, that he changes lives, and that he is creating a people for himself designed to be testimony to those outside that he is real and that this is good news for the world. He might get some of those things, but he might not with what he's crafted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his incredible book, Life Together, if you haven't read Life Together, read Life Together. I know we have a few copies back at the bookstore. Um, He puts it this way. He says, bearing, he's actually talking about this Galatians passage we just read. Bearing means forbearing and sustaining. The brother is a burden to the Christian precisely because he is a Christian. For the pagan, the other person never becomes a burden at all. He simply sidesteps every burden that others may impose upon him. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. Is that good? I'm going to read that last sentence again. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. The church is obviously not perfect, but it's Jesus' bride. It's not perfect, but it's Jesus' plan A for helping people be cared for in this world. And the church is not perfect, but it's essential. And it isn't perfect, but he actually will one day make it so. So friends, that in part is what Galatians 6, 1 through 10 is about. So he starts here. He starts by sketching a situation. Let's read it together. Verse 1. Just the first part. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... So here's the situation. There's a brother or a sister in the church who is caught in sin. First thing I want to note is the brother language. We, we so easily just, just sail right past that when we read it because it's all over the New Testament. It's, it's easy to become inoculated to it. But the, the Paul's usage of family language, it isn't accidental. But it's actually uh, putting forward and tapping into the common New Testament theme of the church as a family. Uh, with all that would have meant in the ancient world. So that means that it becomes a source of allegiance, source of identity, source of priority, source of deep relationship, a source of security, and a source of stability. This language is used over and over and over again because he's actually playing into the idea of what is a family? The church is meant to be that, but even deeper and even richer. It is built on a bond that can never be destroyed if it's built on the relationships all of these individuals have with Jesus individually and together. And so this isn't about, like, people being sin detectives, like, looking for every little opportunity to pounce on your brother or sister in the church. He's, he's leveling the hierarchy. There's no greater or lesser. We're all familial. Brother to sister, sister to brother, brother to brother, sister to sister. If you find someone who's caught in sin, and that doesn't mean like, ha ha, I caught you. It means they're tangled up in it. They've been overtaken by it. Here's what you do. Here's the situation. Your brother or your sister is caught in sin. Let's keep going. Here's the response. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you who are spiritual, he's directly tying back into that conversation just a couple verses before about those who are walking in the Spirit. I think it'd be fair to sub that in. Those who walk by the Spirit, the spiritual ones, the ones who are currently keeping in step with the Spirit and evidencing the fruit of the Spirit are to put that fruit to work in how they help the other person find repentance, healing, and restoration. If you go back and read the list of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the, one of the fruit is uh, gentleness. So he's just carrying that idea right forward. If you're walking with the Spirit, you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and if that's you and you see someone struggling in sin, you come and you let that fruit come to bear in how you deal with that person. Let the gentleness be manifest in how you deal with them to find repentance, healing, and restoration. Okay. So some of you in this room, this is me, this first category, you just hate confronting others. You're so conflict avoidant that you just freaked out. Like just reading this verse, you're like, oh no. No, let's get it. Honey, you want to get out of here? Others of you, Maybe don't mind being the confronter, but never, ever, ever want to be in the position of receiving criticism, critique, accountability from someone else. So the other half of you are just freaking out inside for that reason. My point is we're all freaking out inside if we're letting this actually bear its proper weight on us. But Bonhoeffer put it so well. Here's another quote from Life Together. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. In the situation, the proper response is to have enough love and care and concern for the well-being and the intimacy with Jesus of your brother and sister that you're willing to enter into the awkwardness and the mess and the potential misunderstanding of saying, hey, let me help you. Let me come alongside you. So he takes the situation and the response, and then he gives us a principle. He's being really methodical here. Verse 2, he says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing the burdens, which I think in this context, it, it first of all, not only, but first of all means this thing about helping people recover in their sin, help them find healing, help them find restoration when they're caught in sin. I think that's what we should think of first. It's an important part of fulfilling the law of Christ, Paul says. So what's this law business? The whole book hasn't it been about the distinction between law and gospel. Is, he, is Paul contradicting himself here? No. I think he's calling back to chapter 5, verse 14, when he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You want to talk about law? Here's what we're talking about. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second part of the great commandment that Jesus gave his followers. So Christian brothers and sisters in local church, bearing one another's burden is part of what it means to live out the great commandment of Jesus. And just as another side note, the, the Greek word for one another here is this word alelone, and it appears 60 times throughout the New Testament uh, in context where it's talking about how the members of the local church relate to one another. So you'll bear one another's burden, love one another, serve one another, consider, uh, and we don't have to list them all. Sixty times 
Paul talks about the local church relating to one another as one to another. All of these are actually putting practical realities on this most basic command is what does it mean to actually sum up the law? It means to love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. And you do that in how you actually one another, one another in community. This tells us the primary way we should conceive of our relationship to the church, this church, Door of Hope, isn't to the pastor, it, it, it isn't to the Sunday service, it isn't to the worship team. It's one to another. If that's not your primary lens for thinking through what it means to be a part of a local church, uh, I'd encourage you to rethink that. That means we have to lean into relationship with curiosity and with interest in the other and with sacrificial love. As we like to say, God didn't save each of us into a vacuum, but into a community. And this community is, we increasingly see it's his plan A for how he's going to nurture his people. And it's reparative, it's restorative when it's done well, but it's also preventative. Can I share a stupid story? Yes, it's the lad. Okay. Um, okay, so my wife uh, and I are, are currently on a diet. I, I basically just realized I've come through probably the most unhealthy five months of my entire life between having a new baby where you're just like so tired, you don't have time to exercise. People, so, so some of you are like gloriously bringing us meals so we don't have to cook, but we're just kind of sitting eating things out of casserole dishes and uh, that sort of thing. It was winter. We just had winter, and I like to bike commute when I can, but I sort of lost the will to bike, so I was taking the car when I could basically getting no exercise, things, th things are not going well with Cam. Um, <laughs> uh, so we had this plan, let's, let's, let's diet together, and so we, it's not anything crazy. I mean, it's really just some basic things. I'm cutting out sweets all together, I'm cutting out beer all together, uh, we're cutting out most, like, really complex carbs uh, all together, and trying to, you know, keep healthy stuff around the house. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science, but it's something. So I told a few people on staff at the church that I had started this diet, uh, people who usually look to me to, to help indulge their, their, their various cravings as we go for staff lunches and things, and I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm on this diet, and I'm going to stick to this. So the other day, this last Tuesday actually, uh, we had a staff meeting, and then there was something we all had to do afterwards, so uh, we got surprised. Hey, we ordered pizza for the whole staff. I knew, like, a few people knew I was on this diet. I was like, oh, guys, sorry, I can't eat the pizza. I brought some oatmeal, and I had a banana, and I was, like, kind of moping around. I had eating oatmeal out of my co white coffee mug. But I'll tell you what happened. Uh, we did our building walkthrough, the thing we did afterwards, after the, after the pizza lunch, and, uh, and I walked back through here, th here through the sanctuary, and on the coffee station back there were three boxes of pizza stacked up. And I paused. Our eyes met across the room. <laughs> and I kind of looked around, and I didn't see you nor hear anybody <laughs> in, in the sanctuary. A few people were up in their offices, but they can't see the coffee station down there. So I, I don't know what I, I, you know, this was kind of nonverbal thought, you know, pretty, pretty nebulous, but I just kind of started moseying my way over towards the coffee station. 
with no plan in mind. I was just, you know, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> and uh, I, I, uh, I walked over to the box, and I took the first box, and I opened it. I looked in. No pizza. I shut the box. But then I heard, like, a door shut over here, so I, like, kind of... Uh, just admiring the beautiful lighting. Uh, and, and then, you know, the door was shut. I didn't hear any more noise, so I walked back over to the pizza box, and the second one was there, so I lifted it. No pizza. Shut the box. I literally took another step back in case somebody walked through so they wouldn't see me. And then I went back. I saw the third box. I opened it. No pizza. And <laughs> I just hung my head in shame and walked up the stairs <laughs> and started doing emails up there. Uh, so now, staff, you guys know that's the substance of my self-control. Uh, it's not great. Um, that is a very stupid story to illustrate the point that there is, some, there is a natural, helpful scaffolding that comes when, when people are in community together and they know what their goals are and they're clear. You have a group of Jesus followers meeting together, living life together, uh, like stating publicly that we want to follow after Jesus. We want to crucify our flesh. We want to walk in step with the Spirit. We want to be faithful to Him. There's a natural kind of scaffolding and protection and accountability that just happens in those situations, isn't there? This is God's plan for us. That's why it's so dangerous to live in isolation. Can you imagine if I told no one about my diet? I would have eaten that pizza. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> so now he's going to give a secondary warning. Verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now that's kind of interesting, huh? Bear your own load. We've just been talking about shouldering the burdens of one another. Well, Paul's, once again, he's not contradicting himself. He's actually super perceptive. And Paul knows that, that this business of, of one another actually looking deeply and committedly into the lives and hearts and actions of, of our fellow brothers and sisters is actually fertile ground for spiritual pride. So he's just going to head it off uh, at the top. The only proper motivation for doing this kind of work, this kind of mutual burden bearing when the, the brother is caught in sin. It's the, it's the desire to see spiritual good done to that person. The only proper motivation is, is a heart that wants to see them flourish in their life and in their intimacy with Jesus. But sadly, comparison often is inevitable in our sinful hearts. And so here what Paul's doing is he's reminding us that that our walks with Jesus are our own. The community is in place on purpose. We're saved into this community that we might benefit from the encouragement and the accountability, but on the last day, when we stand before the Lord. Our standing before him is dependent only on our one individual personal relationship with Jesus. Have we been washed by his blood? Have we been sanctified and purified by him? So, the second we turn our attention from Christ to the behavior of other people for self-confidence, we have totally lost the plot. And I know I'm guilty of that far, far, far too often. So that's what's going on here. 
or to do this work, but he immediately recognizes there's a danger here, and he warns us about it. And then he's going to conclude this first half of the, the section with uh, an example. And this one, once again, at, at first glance, it seems a little bit out of left field. He says, verse 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, Paul, you're throwing me for a loop here. What is happening? So what he's doing, I mean, this is familiar lang- familial language he uses throughout in, in, in other New Testament letters. He's talking about the Galatian churches uh, needing to financially care for their pastor teachers. And you're like, what? Where did this come from? And I think what he's doing here is he's actually just providing one more, like a practical example of burden bearing. So he's been talking about this sin restoration thing, and now he's going to talk about actually just financially supporting the one who's devoted full time uh, to the ministry of the word. Uh, so this is another example of burden bearing, and it shows us the application of this passage isn't only limited to sort of the sin stuff. It's a holistic picture of the life of the church bearing burdens everywhere we find them, one to another, in humility and in gentleness and in grace and in generosity. My hunch is that probably this was a present issue in the Galatian churches. It's probably why Paul wanted to slide this in. He may, he may have heard that some of the churches uh, weren't doing well in this area, and so he says, I'm just going to slide this right into this section because it's a really pointed application here. But I just want to say personally, as a full, someone employed full-time by the church, uh, it's a great blessing to me and to my family uh, that our community here values giving generously to support full-time and part-time folks. We actually have 13 people on staff currently, uh, and plus others who get, who get a stipend to do other work. Um, and we're going to continue to call ourselves, and, and anytime Josh or myself, anybody gets up here and, and, and makes the call for generosity to the church, we have to first live that out ourselves and be generous with our, our money as well. We're going to continue to ask for increased generosity as we look to minimize the debt incurred on this incredible building and as we move towards the idea of planting a family of Door of Hope churches around the city. Um, but so far, man, you guys have been so generous and gracious, and uh, I, I know that it's a unique thing in Christian history uh, for our family to be able to feel as, as stable and secure as we do doing this work. And so thank you. Thank you for your generosity. You're helping bear our burden. You really are. So that's the section. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now let's keep reading. We'll read all of verses 7 through 10 here. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I just want to pull out a couple of observations from this section. He's given the, here's, here's an example of what this walking by the Spirit looks like in community, verses 1 through 6. Now he's going to talk about the motivation behind that. 
First, he says this matters because it has eternal consequences. Walking in step with the Spirit, keeping close to the Father, remaining, abiding in Christ. This is sowing work. And the, what you reap when you sow to the Spirit is eternal life. But just as he said in last week's text, the kingdom of God does not belong to such of those who are continually, habitually, ongoingly doing these things. He says here, you, you want to sow to the flesh. What you reap is corruption. There's eternal significance to what we do together, Door of Hope, to the ways in which we come alongside one another and bear one another's burdens. The second thing I saw here is that he, we will be tem- he acknowledges, we will be tempted to give up because it's hard. It's hard. He says, let us not grow weary. The implication is you're probably growing weary. If you've been around church, this church or another church any amount of time, you know it's easy to, to lose motivation, to lose heart, to grow discouraged. You don't see fruit in your own life or in your loved one's life. You feel like, you ask the question, what are we even doing here? Even just living life with this kind of vulnerability and even generosity towards the other, it's hard. It's really hard. Some of you in this room are probably experiencing the excitement of newness right now. Maybe Door of Hope is new to you. Maybe, maybe Jesus is new to you. And you're just like, this is incredible. I've never tasted community like this. This is wonderful. I feel so cared for. I feel so known. I feel so loved. If that's you, praise God. I pray that that never leaves. But, but some of us in this room are probably feeling just the opposite. You've been trying to be faithful for what seems like a lifetime, and you feel like your progress is minimal. You feel like your intimacy with the Lord is non-existent. You don't feel like you really know anybody with any depth when you look around this room. You can't remember the last time someone's bared your burdens or when you bared someone else's. It's hard. We'll be tempted to grow weary. But there's a promise here. Verse 9, he says, For in due season, when the time is right, we will reap. We will reap. God promises that the struggle is worth it. The harvest will come. And it's a really beautiful thought to think about all of our laboring for one another and helping scaffold the faith of one another. What we're actually doing is helping build our community into eternity, aren't we? Every person that we help come to faith in Jesus, that finds salvation, that finds a relationship with him, is one person that we're going to have eternity to get to know the ins and outs of. Every effort that we spend to, to invest and to challenge lovingly and humbly and graciously and to, to pour into, we're sowing for that day. We're sowing for that day. And he promises the harvest brings, it will come. And he concludes with this. So then, as we have opportunity, it's that same word season there, as we have this season, there's a season right here for us right now, as we have that, let us do good to everyone. 
everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why this especially to the church business? Why? It's not exclusively the church. The command is to do good to everyone, but especially to those of the household, especially to those of the family of God, of the church. One answer is because it's how the watching world knows that Jesus is real. You remember John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. When we fulfill the law of Christ, when we love one another faithfully and sincerely and truly, this place, this collection of people here actually becomes a living, breathing, moving testimony to the world that this Jesus we proclaim, he's not dead. He's alive. And he's at work. He's up to something. And it's actually good news for everyone. And it's actually an invitation to everyone, to anyone who would come and trust in him. So let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So if I can sum this up, I think what the Spirit of God himself through the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that pouring ourselves fully into the life together of the local church is actually perhaps the main mechanism by which we evidence the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and we grow more fully into the life of the Spirit. But how do we do this? Where do we get the courage to speak hard truth? Friends, I am one of the most conflict-avoidant people. I have really no business preaching this to you, so maybe if I just say that, it softens the blow a little bit. Where do we get the courage to speak hard truths to confront and then lovingly, humbly restore our brothers and sisters caught in sin? It's the gospel. It does two things for us. Number one, it keeps us from pride because the gospel declares to you and it declares to me that we st- we've all stood powerless before God because of our own sin and brokenness to do anything pleasing to him. There's no, there's no reason for pride because we're all in the same boat. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only for his gracious saving of us that we can stand with confidence. But we can stand with confidence. It puts everyone on equal footing and it supplies humility. But on the other side, it keeps us from fear. Because what do we all fear when entering into conflict? Even when you know, like, you have the person's best in mind. What do you fear? I just want to hear. What do you fear? Actually, that was too many at once. I got in here. <laughs> never, never mind. I'm guessing one of you said, I'm guessing one of you said, damage to the relationship. Is that right? Something like that? Did you say something? I actually do want to hear. What did you say? <laughs> I said hurting their feelings. Hurting their feelings. Yes. Thanks, Sarah. Yes, hurting their feelings. Coming across arrogant. The the end result being, I don't want to damage the relationship. I love this person. Why would I want to damage the relationship I have with them? But this, the gospel keeps us from fear because it tells us we've already been fully and eternally loved, accepted, and received by the God of the universe through Christ. So if you've got that, if you really believe that, that you stand there, 
We can face human rejection. We can face being misunderstood. We can face being misrepresented. The gospel supplies us with boldness. And on the flip side, where do we get the humility to receive the restoration and the conviction and the challenge of others? It's the gospel. It reminds us that God already knows our deepest, darkest, ugliest, most broken moments of sin, past, present, and future, and that he has extended grace and restoration to us so we don't have to lash out at human, human messengers. The human messengers he's choosing to work through to build us up into the image of Christ. It reminds us that his sharpening work in us is because he loves us and wants us to experience joy and freedom and peace that comes with following after him more closely. So if you've never trusted Jesus, today's the day. Jesus, the Son of God, he died for your sins. He dealt with them finally and once for all. He cleared every barrier between us and the God of the universe. He was raised from the dead, proving who he was, proving every word he said. And he's coming back to put all things right and to reign with those who have trusted in him. And you can choose to trust him today, and you can enter today into this family, this church, this whole beautiful and messy thing that we've been talking about.